Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, wherever you are, welcome to the 18th of November 2022 episode of the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast. It's hosted by me. My name is Jeffrey Bingham Mead. I happen to be a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, a community long known as the gateway to New England. As always, I'm so glad that you could join us for today's show. Founded on July 18th, 1640, Greenwich, Connecticut is one of America's most interesting and extraordinary communities. This weekly podcast show is dedicated to exploring and revealing the history of this community. It is one of America's most notable and dynamic communities. But for many of us, it's a special place that we call home and have called home for well, centuries. <laughs> anyway, whether your roots go back nearly 400 years as mine do, or even 400 seconds, maybe somewhere in between or beyond, if there is such a thing, whether you are here to stay or just passing through, well, we welcome you with open arms. You're part of our history, so I send you my congratulations. The Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Sight Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, Mr. Kevin M. J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Coming up on today's show. Well, happy autumn, everyone. It's the last smile of nature before the winter cold. May the warmth and glow of the autumn season bring you endless joy. And as we approach Thanksgiving next week, remember to see the beauty of autumn. Let us see the blessings which are ours. On today's 18th of November 2022 show, we're going to cast our gaze back to America's Gilded Age in the 1890s through Matt Bernard's book, Victorian Summer, the Historic Houses of Belhaven Park, Greenwich, Connecticut. Ridgecrest is a shingle-style residence in what Scientific American described as being in the quote-unquote modern rustic style. It was built in 1892 on Bush Avenue for Nelson Mead, a Greenwich-born lawyer and businessman who, in 1912, was until recently the last Democrat from Greenwich to serve in the Connecticut State House. On Greenwich Before 2000, we'll go back to what happened in the year 1942, a pauper's field, a potter's field, sorry, a pauper cemetery or a common grave as a place for the burial of the unknown, unclaimed, or indigent people. It might surprise you to learn that the town of Greenwich has such a cemetery, and I'll share its history with you. You'll meet Greenwich artist and historical columnist Whitman Bailey, whose illustrations and stories about the town's history and historically notable places were published in Greenwich newspapers. You'll learn today about a section of Bruce Parker once known as Hawk's Nest. The Greenwich News reported on its front page Ernest Thompson Seton's seven months of exploration in the far north. Quote unquote, after the famous naturalist returned to his Coscop estate, Windy Ghoul, on November 15, 1907. In November 1928, columnist L.B. Edwards penned a piece in the Greenwich News and Graphic on how 
Thanksgiving was observed in Greenwich, Connecticut throughout its history. As reported in Greenwich Free Press recently, the Samuel Ferris House, built circa 1760 in Riverside, is under consideration for designation as a local history property. Now this is interesting. In early November 1911, John Skimmerhorn, a 17-year-old farmer's boy from Webster, New York, near Rochester, wandered into Greenwich Police Headquarters. Well, that's a bit far, don't you think? His father and mother were in Danielson, a borough of Killingly, Wyndham County, Connecticut, on a farm they had purchased. Leaving the boy to husk corn on the old farm, his instructions were to take the train to join them. But how did he end up in Greenwich? Well, stay tuned, I'll let you know. On crimes and misdemeanors, an armed, disguised company entered Mr. George Dayton's home and celebrated the 20th anniversary of his wedding in Belhaven. Well, that's rather unusual, to say the least. My friends, Thanksgiving is less than a week away. I'll have news of upcoming events at the Greenwich Historical Society, including holiday offerings, ushering in a special magic to the holidays, only found in Bush Holly House. Twachman's Greenwich Home, then and now, is an illuminating article penned by Maggie Dimmock, the curator of exhibitions and collections with the Greenwich Historical Society. Her piece is associated with the recently opened Life and Art, the Greenwich Paintings of John Henry Twachman, to one that I strongly recommend. You'll hear news of exhibits, activities, and events for the public, my friends, you've come to the right place to learn about the history of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, one of America's most interesting and extraordinary communities. We'll have all this and more as history continues to unfold. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after these important messages. Make Site Design Associates of Greenwich, Connecticut your choice when it comes to taking your beautiful landscaped property to the next level. An award-winning landscape architecture studio since 1979, Site Design Associates places a high value on a unique multidisciplinary approach to landscape design and development that is second to none. From analysis to construction to maintenance with 35 years of experience, Site Design Associates offers services that are collaborative and visionary with each client's unique style in mind. Offices are located at 777 West Putnam Avenue in Greenwich, Connecticut. Call 203-869-6895 or go online to learn more at sitedesignassociates.com. The Long Island Sound Institute understands that a bright environmental future relies on brilliant ideas and methods. A special initiative by Site Design Associates, LISI is a community of diverse professionals, researchers, academics, and concerned citizens, harnessing the powers of imagination and innovation to achieve the ecological balance and conservation of Long Island Sound for present and future generations. It aims to use modern planning and the implementation of new technologies to conserve Long Island Sound, looking forward to a bright future of effective leadership. To learn more about the Long Island Sound Institute, go online to lisistudy.info or call 203-869-8632.
The Ambassador Museum, United States of America, is a tribute to those Americans who served the nation on the international scene as ambassadors in the American diplomatic corps. There has never been a museum specifically dedicated to ambassadors. The museum's founders and supporters are committed to achieving its educational mission with programs and events for high school and college students. My friends, you can learn more by contacting the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, by calling 203-869-8632, write to Box 5002, Greenwich, Connecticut, 06831, or go online at amusa.info. Well, thank you, Kevin M.J. O'Connor, Vice President of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, knowledgeable in the complexities of the financial markets with a passion for servicing clients and their financial needs. My friends, learn more at jeffreymatthews.com or call Kevin M.J. O'Connor at his Greenwich office, telephone 203-485-7595. Again, that's Kevin M.J. O'Connor his Greenwich office at 203-485-7595. The book Victorian Summer, The Historic Houses of Belhaven Park, Greenwich, Connecticut by Matt Bernard, is an incredible compilation of Belhaven's rich history. It features beautiful photos and ephemera and accumulation of decades of work and research on the part of Matt Bernard, its author. At the height of America's Gilded Age, Bellhaven was developed. It was home to one of the most spectacular residence parks in the United States. In fact, successful American magazine described Bellhaven in 1902 as, quote, a non-parallel spot, surpassing in beauty while equaling in elegance, the pet of the fashionable world Newport, an outshining tuxedo in brilliance and gaiety. I'm going to share with you one of the homes that uh, was uh, located in uh, Belhaven. Actually, it's still there. Um, the name of the residence is Ridgecrest. Its principal owner was someone that um, I am uh, distantly related to, and that would be Nelson Mead. It was uh, built in 1892, and its address is 31 Bush Avenue. The architect was Thorpe M. Knowles, and it was altered in 1925. What I'm going to read to you comes from uh, Matt Bernard's book, Victorian Summer, so sit back and, uh, and just follow along. The Meads are among the oldest and most storied families in Greenwich. William Mead, who appears to have sailed from England to Massachusetts in 1635, came to Stamford in 1641, and his sons Joseph and John settled, after a sojourn on Long Island, in what is now Old Greenwich around 1660. Sons Joseph and John eventually moved to Horseneck, the old name for central Greenwich, and are listed in town records among the 27 men who bought the land from local Native Americans in 1672. Later that decade, John Meade was serving in the Colonial Assembly. His son, Ebenezer, born in 1663, represented Greenwich in the Connecticut General Court around 1700 and also served as a Justice of the Peace, one of a long line of Meads in Connecticut law and politics. 
Ebenezer is best remembered, however, as the proprietor of Greenwich's first tavern, or, quote, place of public entertainment for man and beast, unquote, opposite the top of Greenwich Avenue, where the Presbyterian Church now stands. Nelson Mead, who lived from 1860 to 1929, descended from one of these first Greenwich Meads. One of his ancestors, a master potter named Abraham Mead, built the first farmhouse on the Belhaven Peninsula, circa 1792, on what is now Pear Lane. The house remained in the Mead family, by the way, until 1959, when was then owned by Sam Pryor and still stands, expanded and renovated by the current owners. Nelson Mead was a lawyer and businessman who was elected to the Connecticut General Assembly in 1912 and remains the last Democrat from Greenwich to serve in the Connecticut State House. In 1892, with what we assume were some of the proceeds from the sale of another 110 acres of his family farm, to the land company, which became the second addition to Belhaven Park. Mead hired New York architects Alfred H. Thorpe and Wilbur S. Knowles to design a shingle-style residence on a newly opened section of lots on the north side of Bush Avenue. The result was Ridgecrest, which Scientific American described accurately enough as being in the, quote, modern rustic style, unquote. It is an unusual home, to be sure, and appears to be untypical of Thorpe and Knoll's Verve. The first story is built of rough boulders from nearby farmers' walls. Boulders, quote, placed in position carefully so as not to disturb the growth of moss upon the same, unquote. A deep veranda marked out by stone piers faced the street, with steps leading down to the front lawn. A massive A-frame roof is set atop the rugged stonework, with a large-hipped dormer projecting out from each of the roof's two planes. The roof line was made distinctive by its broadly flared eaves. Though rustic on the outside, the cottage was surprisingly elegant on the inside. Spacious rooms with ample wainscotings and deep cornices, and the requisite multiplicity of attractive fireplaces. One entered the house not from the front, but through an east-side porte-couture, also built of rough stone. The entrance hall led to a spacious reception room that ran the width of the house, with a large bay window at the far end. Thorpe and Knoll's floor plan was simple but pleasing. On one side of the reception room lay the kitchen and the formal dining room. On the other were a parlor and a library each giving onto the veranda, which faced Bush Avenue. Five large bedrooms with ample closets, but just one bathroom among them comprised the second floor, and servants' quarters occupied the third. After its sale out of the Mead family, Ridgecrest was radically offered in 1925. The shingles, roof, and gables were stripped off and a full second and third story added back in the Tudor Revival style. The carriage house was also converted to create garaging for cars. Now, with stucco and half-timbered exterior, the house is not to be recognized, save for glimpses of its boulder base. The portraiture was walled in, and an entrance lobby created with elegant oak 
linen fold paneling with an exquisite tracery ceiling. The parlor and the library were combined and expanded into what was the open porch. This created a grand salon with a new fireplace at the center. The walls were lined with reclaimed pine paneling. The plain chimneys were replaced with corbelled chimneys typical of the Tudor style. The rustic look was no one-time experiment for Nelson Mead. It was exactly what he preferred. Having gained an intense affection for Litchfield County in northwest Connecticut, Mead commissioned Eric Rossiter to design a shingle-style summer house overlooking Lake Waramog, Connecticut. The large cottage, completed in 1898, has a gambrel roof, but otherwise echoes Ridgecrest. Indeed, the fieldstone foundation and first story suggested the name for the house, the Boulders. It would later be transformed into the famous Boulders Inn. And that, my friends, comes from Victorian Summer, the historic houses of Belhaven Park, Greenwich, Connecticut, by Matt Bernard. It really is a wonderful compilation of the development of the Belhaven section of Greenwich. Um, it is available for borrowing through the Greenwich Library System, and copies are available for purchase through the Greenwich Historical Society's Museum Shop or your preferred online bookseller. Now, if you want to get your hands uh, on a copy at the Greenwich Historical Society's Museum Shop, and I certainly recommend that, please go to GreenwichHistory.org, or you could call the Greenwich Historical Society at 203 869 6899. You're in for a pleasant surprise at Coffee for Good, located in the 1856 Solomon Mead Italianate styled stone mansion at 48 Maple Avenue behind the Second Congregational Church, Coffee for Good has quickly emerged as one of Greenwich, Connecticut's top coffee houses. Its success is driven by a never-ending commitment to quality and inclusion. Coffee for Good shines as a unique nonprofit partnership between the Second Congregational Church and Abelis. It employs and trains people with disabilities through a self-sustaining platform so they can thrive in the community. The 1856 Solomon Mead House provides a 19th century style hip and unpretentious historical setting that evokes a setting filled with diverse people who are all inspired. Delightful staff, Super-friendly baristas, great coffee, pastries, and more. Coffee for Good provides free Wi-Fi, free parking, indoor and outdoor seating, with a relaxed local vibe that has become a popular study spot and destination for informal business meetings and gatherings. My friends, take it from me. The word about this gem has gotten around. Located in the historic 1856 Solomon Mead Italianate-styled stone mansion at 48 Maple Avenue in Greenwich, behind the Second Congregational Church, all part of the Putnam Hill Historic District and listed on the National Register of Historic Places, Coffee for Good is open daily, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., except Sundays. You can learn more at coffeeforgood.org. There is a book that I strongly recommend for you. Its title is Greenwich Before 2000, 
It was published as an updated revised edition of another favorite Greenwich book of mine, and that was titled Before and After 1776, The Comprehensive Chronology of the Town of Greenwich. Now, before Greenwich Before 2000 goes through the year 1999. It was adopted as a project by the Greenwich Historical Society, and it was made possible by the generous support and in honor of Russell S. Reynolds, Jr. He's the descendant of the founders of the town of Greenwich, whose numerous charitable bequests have advanced the preservation of Greenwich's history for many years. Today, I'm going to go over with you uh, what happened based on what is in Greenwich before 2000 in the year 1942. On January 2nd of that year, police Greenwich, uh, Greenwich police guard the railroad station as the train carrying Winston Churchill passes through at 4.18 a.m. On the 5th of January 1942, aliens in Greenwich must turn in their shortwave radios, firearms, and cameras to the police, according to government regulations. On January 6, 1942, an emergency program involving over 100 doctors, nurses, and Red Cross workers is set up to provide medical treatment in the event of a disaster. On January 24th, the high school is evacuated in three minutes in the first air raid practice. All students go to nearby homes in groups of 10. On January 28th, Greenwich Hospital postpones its new building after failing to receive priority rating from Washington. On February 9th, 1942, Greenwich and the nation go on quote-unquote wartime, turning clocks one hour ahead. The Red Cross Canteen opens on Art Street in the Junior League headquarters. On February 12th, the first Negro Music Festival, as it was called in Greenwich, uh, with a 150-voice choir, is held in the high school auditorium. On February 13th, the Greenwich Sugar Ration Board is appointed. On the 16th of that month, that would be February 1942, the Round Hill Bus Service is first of several to be formed during the war to save gasoline. At the Masonic Temple headquarters, 250 volunteers register 2,448 men in the 20 to 44 age bracket for the draft. February 17, Greenwich quote-unquote blacks out in the first major Eastern Shore air raid precaution drill about 9 in the evening. On February 22nd, the American Legion opens its new hub in the old Amagerone Firehouse. On March 2nd, tides eight feet above normal flood the shore areas and isolate homes. On March 28th, that would be 1942, new sirens are installed in the backcountry after regional church bells used in blackout warnings proved inaudible for any distance. On April 7th, the FBI, aided by Greenwich police, raid more than 50 homes of enemy aliens to seize, to seize contraband. On April 11th, provisions are made for the volunteer registration of Greenwich Women for Employment in War Industries. On May 3rd, 1942, a deputy housing administrator is named to control rent ceilings. On May 7th, about 31,500 persons register to obtain food ration books. 
In May of that year, 1942, the National Audubon Society Center on Riversville Road opens on a 281-acre gift from Eleanor and H. Hall Clovis. In 1945, the adjacent wildflower garden of 127 acres is a gift of Benjamin T. Fairchild. On May 12th, gas ration cards are given to 11,400 registrants. And on May 18th, Greenwich and the nation are subjected to price ceilings on rents, clothing, and household goods. On May 28th, the representative town meeting approves leasing Todd's Point from the Presbyterian Hospital for $30,000 for one year to cover rental, back taxes, and some improvements. In June 1942, Greenwich Country Day School merges with Rosemary Junior School to become a co-educational school on the Country Day campus. On June 6th, 60 acres of Todd's Point opens to the Greenwich public for the season. In September 1942, the fire prevention ordinance is tabled for the third time by the representative town meeting. On October 16th, the Connecticut governor comes to Greenwich to boost the scrap metal drive. On October 27, 1942, the first incident officer's school in Connecticut to train wardens in war gas detection and bomb protection opens at the high school. On November 18th, the draft age is lowered and all 18-year-olds must register. On November 22nd, all car owners must register their tires and sell any in excess of five for each car. On November 29th, 1942, the Christmas Addicts Community Center, serving the needs of African Americans living in Greenwich, opens in a building on Railroad Avenue, formerly occupied by the Boys Club. On December 9th, oil burners in all town buildings are converted to coal to save oil. On December 18th, the United States government stops all gasoline sales for 60 hours in the Atlantic seaboard states because of the tremendous military needs. And then finally, in 1942, there are 19 factories in Greenwich employing 4,200 people. And all that, my friends, comes from Greenwich Before 2000. You can acquire a copy uh, for borrowing purposes at the Greenwich Library System, or you could consider uh, contacting the Greenwich Historical Society's museum shop at 203-869-6899, or you could also go online to greenwichhistory.org. For well over 130 years, the town of Greenwich, Connecticut has been renowned as a wealth center, a place where successful people, millionaires, and even billionaires uh, in the day and age that we live in now uh, have come and um, located businesses as well as their uh, homes. Um, And one of the things that I think that might surprise many of you in the um, early 21st century um, is that we have a what is called a potter's field or a town farm cemetery. This is a um, a special cemetery. I thought that I would share with you um, a story uh, that I wrote in Greenwich Time. It was published on August 7th in 1991 about the town farm or also known as the potter's field cemetery. 
Um, this one is located not far from the Nathaniel Witherell uh, Nursing Home and, um, and Parsonage Cottage over on Parsonage Road. Um, and, um, and so if you would just uh, sit back, and I'm going to read the text of this to you. It's probably the best way to do this, I think. And, um, and just um, enjoy the, the journey into another aspect of Greenwich, Connecticut's past. The article goes as follows. People often characterize Greenwich as a place for landed gentry, a town of palatial estates and wealth and influence of people, influential people. Yet there are many who do not make headlines who have been a part of the history of the town. Greenwich has among its cemeteries a burying ground dedicated solely to interring the destitute and poor. This is the town farmer Pottersfield Cemetery, located off Parsonage Road, behind the Parsonage Cottage and the Nathaniel Witherell Nursing Home. In my work with the Greenwich Historical Society on Cemeteries, I did not discover the existence of this hallowed ground until 1988, when I received a phone call from a resident of that part of town. She told me that her afternoon walks took her by the cemetery from time to time. High grass and tall weeds lie at so many burying grounds in town were the status quo at this site. And a request was made for me to visit the site and perhaps find some young volunteers to clean up this place. Well, I did. <laughs> All right. That spring, three boys in search of a confirmation project came to the rescue. Their names, Brian and Sean Joyce, with Mr. Joyce on hand and Brian Caruso, did a wonderful job and additionally took down names and dates of those interred here. We did not find usual headstones, but each of the 108 people buried here between 1917 and 1969 had a block of stone with a small metal plaque attached, with just the names and dates that each lived. Not long ago, I heard that young people in the Youth Conservation Corps cleaned up the site. Our thanks should go to their hard work and worthwhile efforts. Who are these people buried in this mysterious place? What stories behind the humble stones are yet to be told? A search of obituaries at Greenwich Library yielded little for most of these people. As I walked around the Humble's plot, I wondered what perspectives on the history of the town they must have had. There were people buried here with names like John Sirichuk. He was an immigrant from the USSR who died in 1968 at Nathaniel Witherell Nursing Home at 80 years of age. Nearby is Adolf Meyer, who lived from 1867 to 1941. A native of Switzerland, he spent his years as a gardener at the Kent House, the famous resort where so many of Belhaven's first modern-day residents became acquainted with the town, which sadly was demolished to make way for I-95. I found a small headstone of Ella Bryce, who died in 1944 at age 75, a native of Hackensack, New Jersey. She came to Greenwich in 1909 and served for many years as a governess in the household of Mr. and Mrs. Albert Lockwood. They lived over on Mead Avenue in Coscob. Ethel Walker was another one that I found. She died in 1969 after reportedly living in town for 40 years, but like so many here, not much is known about her. A retired headwaiter at the Waldorf Astoria in New York named Henry Mars is buried here. He came from Hamburg, Germany, and died in 1968 at age 93. 
Nearby is Ralph Swanson, a worker at Tricolor Stables on Taconic Road, who died in 1964. Joseph Waltney, buried here also, was another immigrant from Czechoslovakia. Mr. Waldney worked at the Abendroth Foundry in East Portchester, where stoves, coal and gas ranges, hot water and steam heaters, and other items were manufactured early in this century. A Norwegian named Inglof Knutsen, a sporting goods salesman, is interred here. One of the more interesting people I researched was Arvid Leitz, a Swede who lived in the last 20 years of his life here in America. He belonged to an organization I never heard of, the Abraham Lincoln Company No. 2 Sons of Union Veterans of the Civil War. Well, I wonder how. In my search, I found the most interesting man buried here was Thomas Shortstop Gleason. His passing also received front-page coverage in the local press when he died in 1934. He was found slumped in a chair in a one-room shack he lived in off Cedar Street in the East Portchester section of Byram. According to the news account, he had been dead for several days, as well as a pet cat found at his feet. Two local women apparently discovered Mr. Gleason meant upon making a chance, uh, a chance glance in the direction of his humble abode. The official cause of his death, and that of his cat, I assume, was carbon monoxide poisoning attributed to a sooty oil stove and the fact that the windows in his shack were tightly shut. According to the written account of the time, he came from Southampton, Long Island, and survived in a hermit-like existence by fishing, clemming, oystering, and doing odd jobs. And he was also on the town relief rolls. He had been employed at the Interstate Lumber Company, but was laid off in 1932 due to the Depression. Shirtstop Gleason was characterized as being a man of, quote, quiet, unassuming nature and well-liked by those who knew him, unquote. In the spring of 1941, a ceremony was held by spiritual leaders of the Jewish, Catholic, and Protestant faiths to concentrate the burying ground. It was attended by staff members of the then Welfare Department, inmates, quote-unquote, at the Parsonage Cottage and others on a day apparently pleasant. Prayers and hymns were hung to officially hallow the cemetery. This cemetery, simple, humble, and assuming, is one of the many such sites in Greenwich that remain as fixtures in our continuing history, in the present and as portals to the past. In this small way, I hope, after years of neglected attention, that I have given the degree of overdue dignity to those who lie interred forever in this placid spot, set among the hills and trees of our town. And that, my friends, is the story that I wrote in 1991 about a very, very humble spot uh, in the town of Greenwich, namely its town farm or Pottersfield Cemetery, which is located behind the Nathaniel Witherell Nursing Home and Parsonage Cottage of Parsonage Road in Greenwich. You can read this article and more by going to my blog site called Writings of Jeffrey Bigamede.blogspot.com. We're very indebted to Maggie Demick, the curator of exhibitions and collections, for the following article that was published 
in the current fall 2022 edition of the Greenwich Historical Society's newsletter. I've decided that uh, to... Um, uh, to share this with you on the podcast. It's very, very nicely done. And this is an exhibition about John Henry Twachman um, and his art at his home on Round Hill Road that we have been anticipating for a long time. We're very, very glad that it is finally going to happen. And so, um, if I may, I would like to share this with you. In 1889, painter John Henry Twachman, having recently secured a teaching position at New York's Art Students League, visited Greenwich in search of a home for his growing family. The artist and his seven-year-old son, J. Alden Twachman, were about two miles outside of town when they came upon a farm, through which flowed a lively stream called Horseneck Brook. As later related by his son, the elder Twachman is said to have thrown up his arms in delight as he shouted, quote, This is it! Unquote. Well, who can blame him? <laughs> the paintings of, of Twachman made of his Greenwich home and surrounding property, which eventually encompassed 17 acres, are the subject of the Greenwich Historical Society's upcoming exhibition, Life and Art, The Greenwich Paintings of John Henry Twachman. The artist's house appears today much as it did in Twachman's time, although the surrounding acreage has long since been divided. Its state of preservation provides invaluable insight for modern art historians, including Lisa N. Peters, Ph.D., who curated the exhibition. Peters made her first visit to the Twachman House in the late 1980s when she began working on the Twachman Catalogue Raisonné, a project begun at Spanierman Callery. In 2021, the John Henry Twachman Catalogue Raisonné was published digitally by the Greenwich Historical Society. And by the way, it is available at jhtwachman.org. Peters made many visits to the house over the years, often conferring with the present-day owner whose knowledge of the house's history and familiarity with its setting and surroundings always provided invaluable insight. Twachman did not date his paintings after 1883, and assigned titles inconsistently, making it difficult to identify his work. The house and its surroundings, therefore, have been a vital primary resource for understanding his life in Auvergne. From 1892 to 1899, while Twachman lived there with his wife Martha and their children, five of whom survived to adulthood, the house and its surroundings became the painter's primary artistic subject. When not painting or teaching, Twachman spent his time expanding and improving the house according to his own vision. His efforts also extended to the natural surroundings where he erected terraced stone walls and cultivated lush floral and vegetable gardens. In the course of preparing for the exhibition Life and Art, the house's story was unfurled in greater detail than ever before. In 2019, Peters worked with architectural historian James Sexton, Ph.D., to establish the most definitive dating scheme of the structure to date, enabling a team of collaborators that included exhibition consultant Susan G. Larkin, Ph.D., Davida Strachbein, and Greenwich Historical Society staff to assign probable dates to several Twachman canvases with greater certainty. 
A set of measured architectural drawings of the house were prepared by Charles Hilton Architects, and architectural draftsman Travis Olson created detailed illustrations demonstrating the phases of the house's expansion under Twachman's supervision between 1890 and 1895. Glimpses of the house Twachman once called home are immortalized in the artworks on view this fall at the Greenwich Historical Society. More than just a record of a place, these paintings, drawings, and pastels invite viewers to step back in time and into the private world of one of the most original American artists of his generation. That, my friends, is an article from the current edition of the Greenwich Historical Society newsletter. This is by Maggie Dimmock, the curator of exhibitions and collections of the Greenwich Historical Society. To learn more, please go online to Greenwich History. You are listening to the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast hosted by Jeffrey Bingham Mead. That's me, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, long known as the gateway to New England. The Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Peter F. Alexander, landscape architect of Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum United States of America, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Thank you. Well, this is a rather interesting way to uh, to celebrate um, a anniversary, in this case a wedding anniversary, a 20th anniversary one, and uh, this happened uh, in um, 1888, and, uh, <laughs> um, and it happened in Belhaven, uh, of course, and well, you know, it, it could happen anywhere, but in this case it did happen in Belhaven. Interesting. Um, a Raid with Chinaware was the headline in the Greenwich Graphic, dated December 1st, 1888. Um, and uh, <laughs> I'll just, I'm just going to read this to you because I think it's rather unusual. Who knows? Maybe it'll inspire you to do something like this for someone in your family or your circle of friends. What happened at a Belhaven villa, an armed and disguised company entered Mr. George Dayton's home and celebrated his 20th anniversary of his wedding. It was with no little surprise that Mr. George Dayton opened an outside door of his handsome residence at Belhaven on Friday evening of last week in response to a knock and saw before him a company of people in double file that extended way out into the yard, each dressed in white. Their faces and forms disguised, and all seemingly armed, for each carried a bundle under their wraps. It took a moment or two for Mr. Dayton, a cool man that is not easily excited, to take in the situation. But a sound like a suppressed laugh was enough, and this unusual visit was surmised. However, before... He could say a word, a protest, even had he felt so inclined. The leaders gently pushed him aside, and this mysterious company in white raiments took possession of the house, and as they passed with silent thread in single file around a table, each one deposited thereon the packages they carried. The truth dawned upon the besieged household when the leader said, quote, A China raid. We have come to celebrate your China wedding, and offer our congratulations. 
Laughter filled the air, and the pent-up spirits were let loose. Mr. Dayton and his wife soon awoke from their reverie, as their hands were shaken by each and every one of the merry company. As they threw off their white apparel and became known, and immediately the celebration began with dancing, games, and social pleasure. Later, a fine collection was partaken of when toasts and speeches and good wishes were in order. This was a surprise party gotten up by Mr. and Mrs. Henry Dayton to celebrate the 20th anniversary of the wedding of Mr. and Mrs. George Dayton, a China wedding party, and many were the beautiful gifts and that they received comical, useful, and ornamental presents all of China. It was a merry affair and will long be remembered not only by Mr. George Dayton and his wife, but all, by all who participated in its festivities. Among those present were Mr. and Mrs. Upper, Uptergrove of Brooklyn, New York, Mr. Henry Dayton, wife and family, Mr. John Dayton, wife and family, Mr. George Sillick, wife and family, Mr. Solomon Mead and family, Mr. Charles Merritt and wife, Mr. Charles D. Sillick and wife of Brooklyn, New York, Mr. Albert Sillick, Miss Runyon, Mrs. Holmes and daughter, Miss Funston and Mr. E. A. Knapp and wife, Miss Hattie Todd, Sergeant Smith, Canada, New York, and Dr. George Foote and wife and others. <laughs> Autumn of 1911, a headline appeared in the Greenwich News, exactly in the um, November 3rd, 1911 edition, and the headline was, Left to Shell Corn, Boy Then Starts for Danielson and Gets to Greenwich. Now, Danielson, Connecticut is up in Wyndham County, um, here in the state, and um, uh, <laughs> oh, I'm just going to read this to you. I think it's one of the more unusual uh, stories that I've run into in quite some time, and so I'll leave it to you. A 17-year-old farmer's boy who gave the name of John Skimmerhorn wandered into police headquarters this morning, that would be in Greenwich, of course, asking for information how he was to reach Danielson, where he said his father, Frank Schimp Skimmerhorn, had recently purchased a 102-acre farm and had gone there with his wife, leaving the boy on the old place at Webster, New York, 11 miles east of Rochester. That would be an upstairs. State New York. The boy said that he had been instructed to husk the corn on the old place and then go to Danielson, and his father had left him nine dollars to care for himself during the week that he was husking the corn and to pay his car fare on to Danielson. The boy said it had cost him a dollar seventy-five to live while he was working at the corn and that on Wednesday night at 9 o'clock, he left Webster, arriving in New York Thursday morning with $1.25 in his pocket. He went to the telegraph office and wired his father to send him a ticket to Danielson, expecting that his father would telegraph back to the same office immediately. He did not receive any wired reply, and having only a quarter left, came out of New York City last evening by trolley, as far as Portchester, where someone took pity on his condition and gave him lodging. Chief of Police Rich saw that the boy had something to eat, and James Marr provided a ticket so that the lab could reach his destination about 150 miles distance, without being necessary for him to walk. 
The boy <clears throat> had an honest face and was apparently telling a true story. After that, I don't know whatever happened to him, but you have to admit that is a rather um, unusual story. <laughs> As Christmas and the December holidays rapidly approach, let us cherish family and friends this holiday season, and with it, a season filled with warm moments and delightful memories. Mark your calendars for Thursday, the 1st of December, 2022, for the Greenwich Historical Society's Winter Market Cocktail Reception. Come enjoy the opening of the annual Winter Market held at Christchurch in Greenwich, 254 East Putnam Avenue. You'll find something for everyone on your list with vendors offering the finest in holiday gifts, jewelry, clothing, specialty foods, and flowers. A portion of the evening's proceeds will go to support the Greenwich Historical Society's programs in education, the arts, and historic preservation. Suggested donation, $20. 5.30 p.m. to 8 p.m. Learn more at GreenwichHistory.org. The annual Winter Market goes from December 1st through 3rd, 9.30 p.m. to 4 p.m. at Christchurch Greenwich in the heart of the Putnam Hill National Historic District, 9.30 a.m. to 5 p.m. Friday, December 2nd, and 9.30 a.m. to 4 p.m. Saturday, December 3rd. Again, you can learn more by going online to GreenwichHistory.org. It's my pleasure today, my friends, to introduce you to yet another gentleman who was a published author uh, and artist uh, here in um, Greenwich, Connecticut in the early years of the uh, 20th century. His name was Whitman Bailey. Um, His drawings uh, and art appear in various newspapers and uh, publications in um, in Greenwich in the uh, early years of the um, 19th or excuse me the 20th century the one that I'm going to um, uh, to read to you today um, is dated from Tuesday November 27 1928 um, he was an illustrator that would be Mamele of course of course but also he wrote about the subjects that um, uh, that he illustrated and um, you will find that they are all um, etchings and um, in black and white, uh, Bill Finch, the uh, late town historian of Greenwich, Connecticut, told me years ago that Whitman Bailey was colorblind. So one of the ways that he was able to express his artistic talents was by drawings. Um, we have um, a uh, image of um, this particular one uh, that is on today's show and uh, th- in today's listing on GreenwichTownForAllSeasons.blogspot.com. The headline of this um, concerns a um, section of Bruce Park known once as Hawk's Nest. Uh, So this caught my eye, and I thought that I would share it with you today. Lo, at a sudden turn the veil below, they far outspread, all flushed with purple light. Gray rocks and umbered woods gave back the, the glow of the last day beams fading into night. A little to the east of our present Bruce Museum in a wooded slope which in the early days was called Hawk's Nest. In fact, the greater part of Bruce Park at the westerly end was once known by this wild and poetic title. Quite naturally, the remoteness of the place would suggest that the name had been applied to the haunt of the fierce bird of prey. But before the days of the late Robert M. Bruce, 
This beautiful property was owned by the Reverend Francis L. Hawks, who no doubt bestowed the name upon his place, half proudly and half humorously. In the past two generations, little has been known about his life. We do know that in his day he was a prominent Greenwich citizen and took part in public affairs. He was an Episcopalian and, as far as I can learn, came to Greenwich as a retired clergyman, although this last fact is not entirely certain. In any case, in the quiet burial ground of our present Christ Church, there is a large monument erected above his grave, a monument on which his likeness had been carved in stone. This might mean that he had been connected with the church, but in going over the records, I can find no mention of him as its rector. Hmm. His death, as recorded on the stone, was on September 27, 1866, when he died in New York City. After his death, his property, which included the western end of Bruce Park, came into possession of the Bruce family, when Robert M. Bruce must have seen its possibilities as a playground possibilities which later led to its donation as a park. The large museum building, which is so familiar to us all, was built by the Reverend Francis L. Hawkes in 1850 to serve as his own house, and later became the home of Robert M. Bruce. Even now, the early title of Hawksnest seems appropriate for this some remote wooded corner of this parkway, since, after all, it was due to the efforts of Francis L. Hawkes, as well as to the later efforts of Robert M. Bruce, that this natural beauty, which we all so thoroughly enjoy today, was preserved and kept from the encroachments of a growing town. Well, my friends, I have to tell you that probably one of the more interesting and colorful people in Greenwich from the Great Estate days was Ernest Thompson Seton, the famous naturalist. Um, And, uh, of course, he lived on his estate in Coscob known as Windigool, which, by the way, you can uh, visit uh, by uh, going to the park off of um, Orchard Street. And um, I have an article that I found rather intriguing. It caught my eye from the Greenwich News. It was dated Friday, November 15, 1907. The headline was, Back from the Far North. After seven months exploring, Ernest Thompson Seton arrived home Wednesday. So that would be just a couple of days before this article appeared. Naturalists visited points never reached before by white men and made valuable discoveries in animal, botanical, and geological world, discovered many uncharted lakes and rivers, and drew a large number of maps. The story goes as follows. Ernest Thompson Seton is home once more at Windigool, his estate in Cascab, after a seven-month exploring trip in the country north of the Hudson Bay country. During practically all of that time, he has been entirely cut off from communication with the world and most of the time has been able to see no white people except for E.A. Preble of Washington, D.C., his assistant. He returned only on Wednesday night, yet on Thursday he was hard at work compiling the data which he collected and now has well underway a book which is to be the chronicle of his expeditions and which will give the results of his discoveries. Mr. Seaton left Ottawa 
on Tuesday, accompanied by his wife, Grace Gallatin Seaton. Mrs. Seaton had gone thither from Greenwich last week, and both had been the guest of Earl Grey, Governor General of Canada. They came directly to Greenwich and will remain here until January, when Mr. Seaton will leave for a lecture tour through England and Scotland. By that time, it is expected that his book will be in the hands of the publisher. Mr. Seaton, when interviewed, was very reticent regarding his experiences and observations, which he is reserving for his book. He brought back a large number of specimens, geological, botanical, together with skins of wild animals, but declined to talk about them. He said that his animal observations were cheaply valuable to show the ranges of different species. After leaving the farthest point to which the railroad could take him, that is, Edmonton, he and Mr. Preble journeyed together about 2,000 miles. Nearly all of this distance was covered in a canoe. From Edmonton, they traveled about 100 miles north by wagon. Then they started out on their canoe trip on the Athabasca River, following it and its tributaries, and exploring the lakes encountered on its course and the forests and plains on its banks. When the party started, there were, besides Mr. Seaton and Mr. Preble, eight and a half breeds and half breeds and Indians, but the, the number of these helpers was reduced to two before the trip was done. The expedition had to be pushed with all possible speed in order to touch all the points which the naturalist wished to reach, and not run the risk of getting frozen in on the way back. Consequently, there was a continual strain of hard work, but Mr. Seaton says that he feels far better than he did before he started because of what he calls the rest. He certainly looks it though his appearance is much changed by the shaving of his mustache, so much so that some of his acquaintances did not recognize him. He has a bad cold, the result, he says, of sleeping indoors after so long a period spent in the open air. A part of the time the party had tents, but for the most part they slept without shelter of any kind, though at times the thermometer was as low as 12 degrees above zero. The trip was without serious mishap. The Indians inhabiting that part of the country, which is inhabited uh, at all, are Chippewans, who have a wholesome regard for the power of the British government and therefore are quite friendly. There was at no time any danger from wild animals in America, for by this time they have come to understand that the power of the firearm is greater than theirs. The one accident that looked dangerous at all was the upsetting of a canoe on the Athabasca River on October 20th, when they were nearly on of the wilds. Mr. Seaton and Mr. Preble were the only occupants of their canoe, and when an, uh, an eaved caught their raft, or a wave caught their raft and threw them um, into the river, there was no assistance to be looked for. Hampered as they were by heavy clothing, they had difficulty in getting ashore. As the canoe contained all their provisions, it was necessary to rescue them, also in order to live. With the ice forming on their drenched clothing, they worked for more than five hours in getting their canoe and their belongings and in drying themselves and their property. 
Mr. T Mr. Seaton said that one of the most impressive things to him was the great area of wheat country through which he passed, a thousand miles long, five hundred miles wide, with plenty of wood, water, game, and mineral products, and with branches of three railroads, the Canadian Pacific, the Canadian and Northern, and the Grand Trunk pushing rapidly into it. He said that he was greatly surprised at the number of Americans who had settled in this country from Minnesota and the Dakotas, and were meeting with great success. But as yet, little had been done toward developing it. It occupies most of the new provinces of Alberta and Saskatchewan, and, he says, can provide good homes for a million people. Beyond this, northward, is the great forest belt, 500 miles wide. Still farther north is what is erroneously called the Barrens, quote-unquote, a tract covered with grass and wild flowers. It has an area for perhaps a million square miles. It is entirely uninhabited and without trees. A point about 600 miles northeast of Fort Resolution was reached. Mr. Seaton was the fifth white man to go through the country, and many of the sections which were explored had never been visited before. He made many geographical surveys, which are likely to be very valuable, and reports that he has discovered many lakes and rivers hitherto uncharted, and the character of which were never guessed. During his stay in the north, all of his mail was sent to Edmonton, and while a great deal of it was lying there, the building took fire and it was destroyed, a circumstance which, which caused him to be even more effectively cut off from civilization than he otherwise would have been. Mr. Seaton promises some unique stories and some great surprises in his forthcoming book on the expedition. On November 27, 1928, the Greenwich News and Graphic published a very interesting article by L.B. Edwards um, about how Thanksgiving Day has been observed in Greenwich. The column, it has been celebrated for some two and a half centuries. How about that? So I'd like to share this with you. The way Thanksgiving Day was observed in Greenwich for very many years, some two and a half centuries, until about three decades ago, was quite different in several respects from the manner of celebrating Thanksgiving Day, generally, by Greenwich families since then, though the important part, family reunions, has continued to be an impressive feature of its observance, and probably will be as long as there are the New England kind of Thanksgiving Days. Agriculture was the main industry of the people of Greenwich until then, when the old town blossomed, Fourth, as the most beautiful suburb of the metropolis, I think it's uh, probably speaking of New York there, the home of not a few of the families of wealth, distinction, and social prominence of the big city, attracted to the beauty spot, unquote, quote unquote, of New England by reason of nearness of its alluring hills and dales, picturesque streams, and enchanting views of Long Island Sound. Thanksgiving Day has been observed in Greenwich as an annual festival day, probably since 1647, as well as elsewhere in Connecticut, the colony appointing in that year, after the harvest was finished, a day of Thanksgiving continued every year since that time, except in 1675, 
when there was none appointed for some cause unknown to the writer. It was celebrated with religious services in the churches and as an occasion for family reunions, a distinguishing feature of its observance in New England. Almost everybody knows Thanksgiving Day is of New England origin, being the first appointed by the Plymouth Colony. When the harvest was over in the year 1621, nearly a year after the pilgrims landed from the Mayflower, on the bleak New England shore, becoming a national annual festival after 1864, when President Lincoln, by proclaiming appointing or appointed the fourth Thursday of November of that year, a national Thanksgiving Day. Every president since Lincoln's time doing likewise, annually designating the same day, the fourth Thursday of November, by proclaiming Thanksgiving Day. The farmers of Greenwich always planned when spring started to raise some products on their farms to market for Thanksgiving Day feasts, not only supplying the local markets, but those of Stamford and Porchester also, and until about a quarter of a century ago, on almost every farm in Greenwich, might be seen a large flock of turkeys, considered by some farmers more appropriate to be called the national bird than the eagle. The fine, proud gobblers leading the flocks about the farms always responded to the gobble-gobble when shouted to them, greatly to the delight of the children and grown-ups too, if any happened to be near. No turkeys have been raised on Greenwich farms in the past 25 years, however. The farmers have tried to do so repeatedly, but their untiring efforts to grow the birds were futile, the young of every brood being affected by some baffling disease that they were unable to guard against or cure, and like the grand old chestnut trees of the woods thereabouts, which supplied the savory brown nuts for the Thanksgiving Day feasts of years ago, no longer exist in Greenwich. A blight ruining the chestnut trees, as disease limited turkeys as products of Greenwich farms. It is a long ways from an ox cart or horse drawn vehicle to automobile trucks for hauling farm products to markets, the way such farm work is done these days. But no turkeys were ever carted from Greenwich farms to markets in automobiles, for the turkeys on the farms of the town disappeared about the time automobiles appeared. Years ago, tons of them were conveyed to markets from Greenwich farms in carts drawn by oxen, a slow way when measured by the speeding automobiles, but sure one that's certain. Speed was not considered a desiratum by Greenwich farmers in those days. In fact, most of the farmers and their families were not noted for their rapidity, but the majority were well-to-do and happy, and most of their homes had all of the conveniences for household comfort of their generation, and the Thanksgiving Day family gatherings on the old farmhouses were occasions for unalloyed felicity. And what feasts they had spread on the tables, which Grandma and Mother prepared, while the male and younger members of the family attended religious services. Soup was rarely, if ever, a part of a New England Thanksgiving dinner years ago. There was, of course, the turkey with fixins, done to perfection, mashed potatoes and turnips, boiled onions, celery, and chicken pie, with the hole in the center of the top crust, which Grandma knew how to make, and that was delicious. And pie, on the New England farm kind, 
pumpkin, apple, and mince, always or nearly always, three kinds on the table, and everybody was expected to eat a piece of each kind, served with cheese made on the farm. Then came cider, hickory nuts, and chestnuts, seldom coffee. Some feast that when and when the participants had finished, they were, they were unanimous in the opinion that they had partaken of a fine Thanksgiving dinner and wouldn't want anything to eat for a week. These feasts were looked forward to for weeks by the farmer folks in anticipation of much pleasure. Not on account of the dinner they knew would be fine, because Grandma and Mother would prepare it in their best style, and there were some cooks but for the reason that the family would be reunited again, if only for a short time. Sons and daughters who had married and were living in the big city would be at the old farm again, and their children, who rejoiced when Thanksgiving Day came, and they would go up to the, up to the old farm. Travel from New York on the railroad was always heavy into New England the day before Thanksgiving Day and afternoon trains stopping at Granite Station, generally several hours late. There were so many passengers on their way to the old farms for Thanksgiving Day reunions. These conditions were reversed at Christmas, a few from New York City or elsewhere coming to the old houses in Greenwich, but for the past half century, or maybe a few years more than that. A visit to New York was arranged by members of the farmer's families, especially the younger, who rarely, if ever, went to, the, to a theater, except on Christmas days, when they anticipated mat attended matinees at the playhouses of the city, and then came home early in the evening to tell the old folks about them, enlivened by the greatly enjoyed diversion from the daily routine of life on the old farm. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning into the 18th of November episode of the Greenwich Town for All Season Show podcast. My name is Jeffrey Bingham Mead, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, here in the USA, and I'm so glad that you could join us for today's show. Greenwich, Connecticut was founded on July 18, 1640. It is one of America's most interesting and extraordinary communities. You and your Greenwich stories are a part of our history, and we are very, very glad to have you. The Greenwich Town for All Season Show podcast is made possible, as always, by Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, Mr. Kevin M. J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Well, I got to tell you, it is definitely autumn outside. Um, <laughs> it's windy. And, um, you know, the leaves are almost off uh, all of the trees. Please go out and enjoy the abundant sunshine uh, that we have. Maybe I'll see you at uh, some of my favorite places, such as Coffee for Good, over on the campus of the Second Congregational Church in the Solomon Mead. Uh, mansion uh, over at 48 Maple Avenue. If you do, always come over and say hi. I always like to socialize with people and uh, stay warm and well as we approach the sea, uh, the uh, the weekend. Uh, I will be back with you next week. Next week, believe it or not, is Thanksgiving. Goodness, can you believe how fast this year has gone by? Well, it has. And I will be with you once again a week from uh, today. 
um, a week from Friday, of course, that's today, November 18th, and uh, next week will be the 25th of November, the day after Thanksgiving. So tune in. I look forward to uh, showing you more of Greenwich, Connecticut's extraordinary history. We'll see you then. Bye-bye now. Thank you.